0: uh so, yeah. uh what an honor so so lovely to have you uh chatting with us today um all the way from uh, what i would imagine is a very sunny rome even though it looks like you might be in new york uh welcome <laughs> yeah. um i i uh, i know you're a you're a legendary taught ted speaker you've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world but um, i'm sure that you'll uh, do a much better job of uh, explaining who you are and what you do uh, to the probably one or two people who may not know who you are, and for the rest <laughs> of the world does already. So, congratulations! But yeah, uh, so yeah, please, please uh, do, do do share a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So, I'm a behavioral designer. So, I help companies build products and services that build healthy habits in users' lives. Uh, I work primarily with uh, healthcare, care, getting people to make sure that they form habits around taking their medication or using a medical device, uh, with uh, fitness products that help people exercise and eat right by changing their habits, uh, education products that get people into the habit of learning a new language or learning some new skill online. And so these are the types of companies that I work with uh, to, to change consumer habits for good. Uh, so my first book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and that came out of a class that I taught at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business and later at the Hasselblad Planners of Design for many years. And then my second book is about the other side of the equation. Uh, hooked is about how to build good habits. Indistractable is about how do we break bad habits. But of course, it's not the same products, right? We want to get hooked to the healthy products that help us build good habits, but we want to disengage uh, or use less or moderate our behavior so that we don't get distracted by some of the unhealthy bad habits.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And your I mean, your, your background also is really interesting, right? You, you, were, so you're born in Israel and then made it to the States somehow. Um, was, yeah, that, was that when, I was, when three. was that was that your, with your folks or, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Not, my parents, that was not uh, your decision immigrated. necessarily. No, no, no,
1: no. And I, I was only three years old. So I've, I've been uh, in the States since I was three and now kind of oh, uh, no. making my way, v- visiting different cities. I lived a couple in uh, the past, Couple of years in Singapore, uh, probably will go back there and wow. uh, kind of in and out of New York and and traveling so around.
0: You like you like the heat, then if you like Singapore, it's uh, I do it's bonkers, like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> better than the cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Well, you, 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 I'm I'm imagining in uh, what do you do with the New York winters? I mean, uh, it's brutal.
1: We're not there. <laughs> that was my deal with my wife when we moved to New York. I said <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll come to New York, but not for the winter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> fair enough um but yeah sorry when you so when you started you you um i was reading that you first started out uh you you were you built a company um selling ads on facebook if i remember rightly and you were also doing solar panels and things i mean how is that trajectory uh how, how's that how do you get to where you are now like sort of a global super well-known incredible famous author um, what's that journey <laughs> I, like i
1: love talking um, to you this is the best ego boost i've ever had i love it thank you <laughs> but uh so so my my path i went from um uh I, I i started my professional career as an americorps volunteer it's like a domestic peace corps so i took a year off between high school and college to do right. direct service and i i taught uh as an 18 year old i took a year off and and um I taught at an underprivileged school and I was very much around like activism and changing the world through direct action and thought, you know, the world is the way it is because people just don't care enough. And so I care, so I'll fix the world. And then I went to uh, college and I took a macroeconomics class that changed my life. Because once you start realizing what economics teaches, which economics is the study of incentives, uh, you learn that people respond to incentives. And so it's much more important to understand systems uh that systems that build certain incentives and this kind of reinforced what i learned frankly you know when i was um, a a volunteer uh, through americorps uh in the public school system i learned a big problem of the school system in at least in the united states i don't know internationally is that our teachers many of them not all of them many of them are horrible and the good ones are have a disincentive to stay uh and that's i saw that from from direct, uh, direct accounts, right? That many of these teachers were really bad and there was no reason unless they did something super horrible that they would ever be fired. And that's when I kind of realized, wow, there's something deeper here that the reason education is so horrible in the United States has a lot to do with incentives, with unions, with uh, with, with how people are rewarded to do a good job. And that was that was really fascinating to me. And uh, the economics class that I took in college really changed my mind in terms of what, what level of action I wanted to participate in, that I tried the direct service and it was really good intentions. And we all know, you know, where the road to, of good intentions leads, uh, of yeah. course, it leads to hell, <laughs> that, <laughs> that it's much more important to, to be strategic and be thoughtful about where we apply uh, our action. And so uh, I, I wanted to try business that I thought business was a system level opportunity to to change the world uh, and make it better uh, through incentives. And so I started my career um, after college at the Boston Consulting Group, where I learned about uh, business. I uh, did that for a couple of years and started a solar energy business, a uh, solar energy company. And uh, this was well before the, all the it's incentives we, we had today. Yeah, I was
0: going to say, must have been way, way ahead of No, the no, time. sorry, 2003. Yeah,
1: wow. yeah 2003. Wow. So this was before all the yeah. incentives. This was before Tesla. This was before, uh, you know, the, yeah. the solar energy boom that we have today. We were at the right time in the right place. We uh, ran that company for a couple of years, sold it to a private equity firm. And then I went to business school at Stanford and um, uh, started a company at Stanford in the gaming and advertising space that we uh, raised venture capital for. And at the intersection of gaming and advertising, uh, I learned from many of my clients and colleagues about how products are designed to change human behavior. And uh, after th- that last company that I that I helped start uh, was acquired, I wanted to start another company. And I had this conviction that at the time, this was 2012, so the iPhone was only four years old, that the products of the future that would really change human behavior would be the ones that can change habits. And why did I know this? Because I could see that the interface was shrinking. So as we went from desktop screens, yeah. right, big desktops to laptops, to mobile devices, to wearable devices, and now to auditory devices like Amazon Alexa, that the the real estate, the amount of space we have to trigger behavior through what we call external trigger, through visual cues, was shrinking and eventually disappearing. So if you can't cue a user to change behavior through a habit, your product might as well not even exist, right? Because they won't remember to use it. They won't see the trigger to use it. So I knew we had to rely upon these internal triggers rather than external triggers in order to form habits. So when I looked around and said, okay, where's a book on how to form habits? I didn't see one. So I started writing and researching and talking to my clients, talking to my former professors at Stanford and and seeing what I could codify. And I started blogging about this. And then the blog turned into the book. And then I got a call from uh, one of my former professors, Baba Shiv, who said, I really like your framework. Uh, I love all the research you've, you've uh, uh, put together here. Let's teach a class together. And so that led to my uh, teaching (laughs) career for a few years at Stanford and at the, at the Hasselblad Institute of Design. And uh, yeah. And since then I've, I didn't intend to be an author. I thought I was going to start another <laughs> business, but uh, the writing and the researching is something it turns out I really enjoy. I didn't know you could do this for a living. And uh, so, yeah. so that's, that's kind of my path until now.
0: Well, congrats. I mean, you're also, you're a marvelous storyteller, which I think, uh, what, Thanks. what, 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 uh, what a lot of people love about you is you, you, you link a lot of uh, disparate things together to make stuff uh, quite easy to understand. So, um, yeah, bravo on, on that. There are a few things that, uh, that are really, um, that, that popped out when you were talking there that I thought was interesting. There was, there was one bit where you said, um, yeah, you, you went to Stanford and, and, uh, you were learning, uh, was it economics there? Um, did, at the time was behavioral science a part of the of the curriculum mm. that was taught or um because it, it you know i think the sort of when you're dealing with volunteering work and things like that you're often dealing with human behavior you you probably had experience to that more so than a lot of other people uh, which is kind of interesting and I, I just wondered yeah when when did you first get into the sort of behavioral science side of things
1: Well, it's a fairly new field, so it wasn't something I encountered in in undergrad. I went to Emory for undergrad and and Stanford for for grad school. Um, And it wasn't something we had formal classes on at either uh, of of those institutions at the time. Um, But I think my my fascination with uh, behavioral design, what today we would call behavioral design, probably started even earlier than that. I mean, certainly when I was trying to Change people's behavior in the school system and trying to figure out why people weren't just doing what I wanted them to do (laughs) and how difficult it is to change their behavior. That, you know, to one person, it seems so obvious oh, we should all do this, we should all do that. And then, you know, when you try and design uh, a program or a product to change behavior, anyone who's actually built products knows it's very, very difficult to do. Um, And so uh, I certainly encountered some of that uh, in AmeriCorps, but I think even earlier, Uh, so I, I was clinically obese, uh, at one point in my life, uh, in my early adolescence and, um, you know, I'm like the whole nine yards. I remember my, my mom taking me to fat camp and to the doctor and, you know, he's showing me on this chart. Here's, here's normal weight. Here's, uh, here's overweight. And here's you, you're over here in the orange zone, this, uh, this obese, clinically obese zone. And I remember feeling like food controlled me. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, anyone who's struggled with obesity will tell you that, You know it's not obese people don't eat because they're hungry or at least not not only because they're hungry there's a lot of emotion involved with a behavior that we do obsessively that despite its harms and for me it was you know i would eat when i was lonely i would eat when i was um, bored i would eat when i felt ashamed at how much i had just eaten and so that spiral and that that feeling of a lack of control from a product right from food uh, i wish i could tell you it was mcdonald's fault that i was obese but it wasn't right it was it was a lot going a lot more going on yeah. than the simplistic idea that it was just what i was eating it was about these emotions and i think that's something that's fascinated me and carried through my work um is looking at not only how products are designed to change behavior but what do they latch on to what is it inside the consumer that a product event actually um, attaches its use to. And fundamentally, all products and services are used for one reason. And that one reason doesn't matter what your product is, whether you're serving you know, enterprise clients, healthcare, education, whatever, every product does one thing, and that is modulate mood. That is fundamentally what all products do. They modulate our mood. Specifically, they they absolve discomfort. That's what, that's why, because that's all human motivation is. I mean, we used to think about human motivation as the desire to pursue pleasure and avoid pain, right? Jeremy Bentham said this, Sigmund Freud said this, this is an outdated notion. When you look neurologically, everything we do is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but rather it's just one of those factors. It's all about the desire to escape discomfort that, that neurologically, even craving, wanting, lusting desire feels psychologically destabilizing. It feels bad. Even the desire to feel good feels bad, (laughs) right? Because the brain doesn't do what feels good. The brain does what felt good. The memory of the sensation, the orgasm, the taste, the pleasure, whatever it is that we seek, that is what drives us. That is the nature of human motivation. So all human behavior is about the desire to escape discomfort. And when you understand that, I think that not only helps you design products and services that improve people's lives by building healthy habits, it also makes you a much smarter consumer in terms of, of being able to reflect upon why we use, abuse and overuse certain products in our life as well.
0: It makes a lot of sense, and I guess, I think it's something that you talked about um, quite a bit is you know, the, the, where does the responsibility lie? If you're creating a great product um, that, that, that's causing you, you know, causing you to feel things and, and changing your mood, um, uh, particularly ones that are, that are very, uh, addictive, where does, where does the corporate responsibility end and the individual responsibility begin is, and, and is there even an answer?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this question. I think it's a fascinating question. Um, and even with my first book hooked, I, I, in, there's a whole chapter in there about what's called the manipulation matrix. Uh, which is this guy to help you as the the product designer figure out what's an ethical way to apply these techniques. And I think the biggest differentiation, uh, it's not that manipulation is wrong. Manipulation has a, a a negative connotation, but but actually the word itself is not negative. It's because I think manipulation splits into two parts. Manipulation, there's two kinds of manipulation. There's what we call persuasion, and then there's coercion persuasion is helping people do things they themselves want to do. And I think that's very ethical, right? If, if I want to exercise, if I want to eat right, if I want to save money, if I want to connect with loved ones, if I want to be more productive at work, but darn it, it's too difficult, right? The products and services that are available to me make that difficult for one reason or another, helping me do the things that I myself want to do, but for lack of good product design, don't do that's perfectly ethical. I think, I think that's the, the, the promise. That's the beauty of, product design. That's why I love what I do for a living, because we help people do what they truly want to do to improve their lives. So I think that's very ethical. We need more of that. (laughs) But the opposite of persuasion is coercion. Thank God it's
0: what we do with our learning.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So the opposite of persuasion is coercion. Coercion, (laughs) unlike persuasion, which is helping people do things they themselves want to do, coercion is getting people to do things they didn't want to do, things that they later regret. And that is not only unethical, it's bad business right? That if you get people to do something that they later regret, not only are they not going to do business with you ever again, they're going to tell all their friends on social media not to do business with you either. So it's a very bad business practice to try and trick people into doing something they don't want to do. And of course, the vast majority of you know, we call them dark patterns. uh, These these kind of tricks that get people to do something they later regret. Overwhelmingly, when companies are publicly shamed for using these techniques, I mean, we always hear about the, the bad apples. But overwhelmingly i mean if you go to darkpatterns.org there's a repository of all these dark patterns it's difficult to find something that has not been changed all the examples are old (laughs) because companies change these dark patterns very very quickly uh you know the the, so companies themselves uh you know can't use these tactics for very long so i think from an ethical perspective as long as you are on the side of persuasion rather than coercion by the way i i implemented a, a, a test for this so that companies who are using these tactics can ask themselves to use what what I call the regret test, and this this I think is the answer, is that when there is a an ethically questionable tactic, right, and there are many, uh, when there's an ethically questionable tactic in our in our design, we should run a regret test. What is a regret test? A regret test uses what we call usability studies. We we've been doing usability studies forever in in uh, in, in our profession, and what do we do with the usability study? You bring in a bunch of people, you show them the the UI. And you see what they think of it, and you make changes based on their opinions. We've been doing this for decades. We should also do it to test regret, meaning would the user do what we have designed for them to do knowing everything we know, okay? Would they regret using the product? So we bring in a few people, right? Maybe 10, 15 people. And before we push it out to production, before we make a product go live, we test it with with a sample group and we see if the user knows everything that we know, would they regret using the product? And the beauty of this tactic is that even is that you almost never have to run it. So just the, the the chilling effect of being in a boardroom and saying, hey boss, you know, before we push that out, I think we should do a regret test. And it's amazing how that even that threat of saying, you know what, we should test this with people before we put it out live and get bad press and, and you know people hate us on social media, we should test this first that has an amazing chilling effect because people have a pretty good sense of what kind of tactics are persuasive versus coercive. So running that regret test or even threatening yeah. to run a regret test is a wonderful way to stay on the right ethical side.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And, and, and Bravo for creating that. Um, sure. the, uh, the thing that I, 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 I never am quite sure about, and and I guess it's possibly, I mean, I guess it's a problem for all of us. I was going to say, it's probably more for, for parents of kids, but yeah, if you if you have, know um, yeah, if you look at TikTok or YouTube or Instagram, um, I, in my lifetime I've just seen this happening more and more and more aggressively. But basically, if you went on to go and watch, you know, I went into, went on to go and watch one of your talks. So if I was on Instagram and looking at a silly cat video or something, um, it would show me another one and another one and another one, and another one. It would just yeah. progressively uh, get slightly crazier. Um, and then you look up and you you're like oh what, what happened to that last hour? Uh, <laughs> and you mm-hmm. uh, are supposed to be doing a project or something else. Like, is in that in that responsibility? Do you think the responsibility then is is with the user or or, or should there be like some pop up warning or something? Because I guess it's not such a problem if you're you know watching a, a whole load of TED talks maybe or if you're watching maybe cat cat or kitten videos or something. But probably if you're if you're watching something about an extremist talking about something uh, crazy and then it gets even more radical, yeah. I, I guess bad so, things can so, happen so, there. uh, yeah, so there's a lot will, what, there.
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry to cut you off. I just want to – there's a lot of issues there. One, you mentioned children. So children are a protected class. Yeah. And there are lots of things in society that children right. aren't allowed to do. My, my 13-year-old can't walk into a bar and order a gin and tonic. She can't walk up in a casino and start playing blackjack. Why? Because children are a protected class. And so we need special protection for children, absolutely. And the company should certainly do more. I know they're trying, uh, they're, they're working very hard to try, the, the big social media companies at least are working very hard to, tr- yeah. to, to, to do things. I would say the American-based. I, I will say I, I'm not so trustworthy of uh, companies like TikTok I, I, where the Chinese Communist Party is involved with uh, to some extent, I think that is worrisome. So I, I, I will say as a disclaimer, I, I'm much more familiar with what's happening in the US-based uh, companies versus uh, the, the companies that are, are based abroad um so i do have concerns there but i think children you know do deserve special protection uh and that that starts in the home okay let's be very clear your children without guidance will find things that they shouldn't find <laughs> so parents definitely have to be involved right i think parents right. need to also set an example right you can't tell your child get off uh a when you're on facebook Right? You need to be indistractable yourself. Okay. You can't be a hypocrite. You have to set the example yourself. But I do believe that companies have a special responsibility to protect children because they are a protected class. I think people who are pathologically addicted should be a protected class. Okay, So we use this, this, uh, this phrase that a product is addictive. Uh, we really overuse and misuse this term, and addiction is a pathology. So an addiction is not the same thing as, ooh, I like to use it a lot. Okay, Uh, I hear people saying everything's addictive these days, right? Uh, TikTok is addictive, and and buying shoes online is addictive, and uh, fettuccine Alfredo is addictive. No, it's really not, (laughs) right? Unless you have a pathological Uh, dependence, it is not an addiction for you. Now, some things that are addictive to some people aren't addictive to others. You know, many of us have a glass of wine with dinner. We're not all alcoholics. You know, many of us have have had sex, yeah. <laughs> but we're not all sex addicts, yeah. right? So it's ridiculous to think just because yeah. something addicts some people that's addictive to everyone, but we love that narrative. We love thinking that we're all addicted because then it absolves us of responsibility, right? If there's an addiction, there's a dealer, there's a pusher. Mark yes. Zuckerberg is doing it to me. That's ridiculous. Yes, three to 5% yeah. of the population is addicted, but we're not all addicted. Just like three to 5% of the population is addicted to all sorts of things we're not addicted the vast majority of us to these products we are distracted which is a very very big difference but if you are pathologically addicted I do think companies have a special responsibility I've written extensively around the kind of legislation I think we do need to have it's called the use and abuse policy but we can go into the details later if it's interesting but if you're not addicted (laughs) right if you're not pathologically addicted there are ways to detect if you are pathologically addicted and if you're not a child I think it's your responsibility. Now, even that can be bifurcated again, because it not only depends who is the user, it also depends what they're doing. So if you're spending money online, that's a much higher bar for regulation, okay? yeah. And we have many laws right. of protecting consumers around how they spend money. But if you're spending time, that's a different story. Because who am I to judge how you spend time? Can you tell me, please, Chris, why is watching a football game on TV somehow morally superior to playing video games? I don't know. Well, you know, why is talk radio somehow? Okay. But, but, you uh, you know, if we think about, oh, controversial topics and misinformation in the United States, at least, do you know the amount of crap that is on talk radio? that is fed into people's brains, these conspiracy <laughs> theories, this crazy stuff, it's far worse than what you find on social media because it's not moderated or tracked at all. Cable news, the junk they put on, on cable news, nobody's talking about, nobody wants to regulate. But somehow, you know, Aunt Nancy spouting out a belief on Facebook, oh my gosh, call in the feds. Ridiculous, right? We need that public forum. We yes. need a place because the idea is that everybody thinks are crazy today, sometimes they're right. We need the allowance for the crazies for rational adults, right? So if you're not a child, if you're not pathologically addicted, I think it is a personal responsibility issue. And I don't think it's up to us to moralize and medicalize how people spend their time. Money is a different issue, but time, you know, we have to stop moralizing and saying, Oh, I don't like the way you spend your time. That's a waste. But you know how I spend my time. That's fine.
0: It's a, it's a really interesting argument. actually. I think it's such a a smart point and I've I've never looked at it that way. You, it, it, perhaps a different way of framing it is that you you're sort of what I understand from what you said is is often you know we we, we we say all these bad things about all the big tech companies and and sometimes rightly so but the reason it's often in the press is because it is so easy to measure and the press is always normally dealing with extremes uh, it doesn't deal mm-hmm. with the happy uh, middle <laughs> because that's right. boring. Um, Well, and and there's two other things, uh, you know, either
1: extreme anger, or extreme happiness. Right. Right. And number one, it's competition. Okay. It's competition. So the New York Times and CNN and uh, uh, Fox News and all these media, old media companies are in direct competition with social media. So, of course, they want to make them the bad guy. Yeah. It's an incentives play. <laughs> Every minute you spend on a social media app is yeah. time taken away from other f- forms of media. But guess what? They make their money in exactly the same way. They sell your eyeballs yeah. to the highest bidder. It's the same business model. And nobody, the New York Times yeah. never puts up a warning that says, hey, you've had enough. Fox News never says, go have a life. They're yeah. never going to tell you that. right? Yeah. And yet we don't focus yeah. on them for reason number two, which is that they're old. One of the biggest distributors of misinformation and propaganda is talk radio. Talk radio in middle America, people listen to these these propagandists that distribute lies about stolen election and all kinds of stuff that is demonstrably false. When was the last time any any politician anywhere said we need to start regulating and censoring talk radio? Because it's old. It's not scary anymore. We've dealt with it for, for decades now. But, oh, it's big, bad social media. Oh, we got to get up on that. <laughs> right? Because, yeah. And, and, and that you, know, you know why I'm so yeah. confident in it's this? Because it's the same thing every generation. If you look back from all the way back to the printed word, to the radio, to television, to every new form of media, to the bicycle, for God's sakes. People were saying how terrible bicycles were because they would let women go wherever they wanted. <laughs> what a terrible thing yeah. to let women yeah. gallivant all over town right? Uh, there were articles about how terrible all these technologies were, which today we, we, we think are pretty mundane, because society needs time uh, to pass through to digest these moral panics and figure out that, hey, you know, these technologies can be sources of good, right? They're, they're, it's great that people can congregate online, they can exchange ideas. I, I believe at least that the exchange of free information in a, in a free society is a very good thing. Now it comes with problems, you may not like everybody's opinion. <laughs> but that's part of living in a free society.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and a, and a lovely point you made there as well about bicycles. I remember reading uh, uh, lots of scandalous articles about, um, uh, gosh, uh, the swiping app Tinder. That's the one mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. when it when it first came out, saying how um, you know it was, everyone was just going to be having sex everywhere now, and it was terrible. <laughs> um, and it was so interesting. There was someone who found all these very old newspaper articles about when the car became quite common. And yeah. uh, and they were saying that all of these uh, rogue uh, teenagers are going to be gallivanting away from their parents and, uh, and able to to go off together, and they're all going to get up to scandalous oh. things. Um, it, you know, it's the, literally... There's the basic almost, principle of the article was identical.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You almost can't find a technology where people didn't freak out. <laughs> There's a wonderful website right. uh, that my friend my right. Jason Freeman uh, maintains called Pessimist Archive that documents, like, basically all these right. archives of people freaking out about, you know, the teddy bear. Did you know the teddy bear? People had a moral panic because children were giving affection to this uh, animal doll as opposed to a baby doll. Like, ugh, people were up in arms, how terrible this was. Like, <laughs> literally every technology, people freak out. And that's not to say that bad things don't occur. I'm not an apologist for technology that, you know, there are... Uh, there, There are negative repercussions. As Paul Virilio brilliantly said, he said, you can't invent the ship without inventing the shipwreck. Of course there are problems with every new technology. But the solution is not to stop using the technology. It's certainly not to regulate it away, right, because then we lose the benefits. It's to make that technology better. And that's what we see happening. So that's why I'm so passionate about what we do is that we need to encourage more people to enter this field, to build better products, to improve the last generation of products. That's how we get out of, of the bad aspects. It's just like ships, right? As Paul Virilio said, did we stop sailing ships? No, we made them better, right? We made them safer. Not, and today you almost never hear about shipwrecks.
0: Thank, thankfully. Yeah. And so, so uh, if, if I, uh, if I go on to the sort of more, I guess, uh, some personal, uh, advice and, and wisdom, um, that I know you're, you're very good at sharing. If, if you are one of these sort of people who, you know, not necessarily an addict, but you, you find yourself getting very easily distracted by, um, you know, multiple beeps and whirls and calls mm-hmm. from all sorts of gadgets and devices. What are the, some of the things that, that you do yourself that, help you to concentrate and keep you on, on track and, uh, and get, you know,
1: write even more brilliant books. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is really the subject of indistractable. Um, so it, it starts with understanding what is the difference between traction and distraction. So many people think the opposite of distraction right. is focus and that's what they seek. I want to be focused. I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused, but that's not exactly right. The way you really want is traction. Traction is the opposite of dis, traction. They both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, and that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The difference in traction and distraction is one word, and that one word is intent. So we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing how we people spend their time and instead decide what we want to do with our time in advance. If you want to play video games, There's nothing wrong with that. If you want to go on social media, fine. There's nothing wrong with any of this stuff. As long as you do it on your schedule, not someone else's, certainly not the tech companies. So deciding for yourself what is traction and what is distraction. Everything that is not traction is distraction. So one of the biggest sources of distraction, it's not the usual suspects, right? It's not video games. It's not social media. It's when we think we are doing what we want to do, but in fact, we're doing something we'll later regret. I'll give you a perfect example. For years, I would sit down on my desk in the morning and say, okay, now I'm going to stay focused. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to get started on that big project. That thing I've been procrastinating. I'm going to get going. Here I go. But first let me check some email, right? Email is is productive. I got to check email at some point, right? That's a business related task. I'm being productive, right? But what I didn't realize is if I said I was going to do that big project, anything else is a distraction, even, and especially work related tasks. So this turns out to be the biggest source of distraction at work is the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy at the expense of the hard and the important work that you have to do to move your life and career forward. Right. So just because it's email, just because it's Slack, just because it's something work-related doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the most dangerous form of distraction because you don't even realize that you are distracted. Okay. So now we know the difference between traction and distraction. Now we have the external and the internal triggers. So studies find that about 10% of our distractions come from external triggers. So these are the pings, the dings, the rings, everything in our outside <sighs> environment that leads us towards distraction. We know this stuff. And this is kind of kindergarten, right? This is kind of the things that people talk about, you know, turn off your notifications, things like that. Of course, duh, <laughs> like, of course. And there, yeah. there are things that we can do about that stuff, but it's only 10% of the time we get distracted, according to studies. 90% of the time we get distracted, nine, right. zero, 9-0, 90% of the time we get distracted It's not because of what's happening outside of us, but rather it's about what's happening inside of us. 90% of our distractions come from what we call internal trigger. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotions that we seek to escape. Loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, boredom. These are the cause of 90% of our distractions. So the most important thing I learned in the five years writing Indistractable was that the vast majority of distraction begins from within which means if we don't understand what discomfort we are trying to escape, right? referring back to what I was saying earlier about when I was clinically obese, it was only when I understood what I was escaping emotionally that I could change my behavior functionally. And so that's what we have to do for any of these. to answer your question, how do we start changing our bad habits? It all comes from understanding what emotions drive these behaviors in the first place. When you come home from work, do you automatically pour yourself a drink because you need to de-stress? Okay, let's talk about that. Let's get into why you're feeling that feeling. Are you checking Instagram or Slack or whatever throughout the day because you don't know what else to do because you have this feeling of uncertainty and ease? Great, let's get to the source of that discomfort because if you don't, Whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you will always find something to distract you unless you understand what is that internal trigger pushing you to look for relief. So that's step number one, master the internal triggers or they become your masters. Step number two, now we're just going around the circle here. Step number two is making time for traction, putting in the things that you wanna do in your day. Step number three, now we get back to those external triggers. We hack back those external triggers, but not just on our phones and our computers. We hack back meetings, right? How many stupid meetings do we attend that are nothing more than distractions? Our kids, we love them to death, but they can be a huge distraction, especially because so many of us are working from home. So there are many more distractions, external triggers in our environment that we can hack back. And then finally, we can prevent distraction with PACs, which is where we use what's called a pre-commitment device to make sure that as the last line of defense, we stay on track, and so those are the four steps to becoming indistractable.
0: Wow, a lot, a lot to take in there, and, uh, and a lot to yeah. think about. I mean, There's a I lot mean, more it, in the book. <laughs> it sounds like, um, yeah, I mean, well, well, I mean, definitely, if you haven't read it already, go, uh, go and go and buy it immediately. Um, available in all good bookstores and Amazon and everywhere, at a patent. What I thought was really interesting was that you. you, know, you hit on on a point there that resonated with me a bit which was you were saying it's it's sort of often unreconciled thoughts or feelings it's almost like you maybe need to have a therapy session with yourself to figure out why it is that you're sometimes not doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing uh, if it's happening uh if it's happening enough
1: yeah i i it's i don't think I'm, I'm not anti-therapy but i would say it's not required <laughs> that, yeah. that sometimes it could be as simple as it, no, I mean, knowing was, what to do with that feeling that, you know, that, for example, you don't need to go to therapy right. because sometimes you feel bored at work. Everybody feels bored at work from time to time. <laughs> now, hard yeah. work is hard, yeah. you know? <laughs> right? So it's, you don't need to go to therapy yeah. to talk about that. Yeah. Out. It could be as simple as saying when I do a task and it is hard, what am I going to do? Am I going to escape that discomfort with scrolling, with clicking, with drinking, with whatever, Or am I gonna lean into that discomfort and know how to manage it and master it so it doesn't master me?
0: Right, right. And then is that sort of at all related to time blocking and and things like that, or is that something a bit
1: different? So that's in step two about making time for traction. So I'm a big advocate of time boxing uh, instead of, or in addition to to to-do lists. So to-do lists are one of the worst things people do for their personal productivity because to-do lists have no constraints. So there's nothing wrong with using a to-do list right. as long as you are also time boxing. And that's the big mistake that people make. They they have this infinite right. list of to-dos, which they never finish <laughs> because there's no constraint. And then they feel <laughs> terrible about themselves because the, day after day, they don't do what they say they're going to do. So make sure if you're gonna use a to-do list, you also time box. Time boxing has, is one of the most study techniques. It's called, uh, in the literature, we call it setting an implementation intention, which is just saying what you're gonna do and when you're gonna do it. Literally, you know, hundreds of studies have found this to be an incredibly effective technique.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And I guess it, it's, we've learned a lot of that from behavioral science as well. Just, you know, signing your name saying that you are going to vote makes you much more likely to then go and vote. So I'd imagine putting down the time and saying that you're going to do this task in this time slot makes it much more likely that you are going to go and do that. I mean, I guess nothing's bulletproof, but it's, uh, it's as,
1: it's, it's as good as you can get. Even even better is asking someone if they are planning to vote or if they are a voter. And this is, I talk about this in the section on pacts, right. how important it is to set an identity that where there's some amazing research around when they, right. they poll people and said, are you planning to vote or do you consider yourself a voter? So the noun versus the verb, when right. people assign an identity to themselves, when they call themselves voters, they become much more likely to actually go vote. And so this is why the book is titled Indistractable. Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. So the idea here is that this is your new identity. You are the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do. You strive to be as honest with yourself as you are with others. And, and it doesn't matter if you've read the book or not. You can call yourself indistractable. It's it's amazing. Once we start changing our identity, once we start thinking of ourselves as a new uh, a new construct, a new moniker, we become much more likely to follow through.
0: That's brilliant. And um, look, I mean, I I know I've taken up a lot of of your time, so I'll uh, I'll, I'll try and and wind it down somehow. But um, thank you so much. There's so many incredible things you've shared there. And um, I wanted to end by asking a a silly question um, that we try and ask everyone, which is um, if you you had to go through the rest of your life uh, uh, and every time you wanted to talk, you had to sing, or uh, would you rather uh, that every time you wanted to uh, walk anywhere, you had to dance instead? Uh, which, which one you, would you prefer? So would you rather always sing whenever you talk or um, always dance whenever you walk?
1: Dance when I walk. That sounds great, actually. I might, I might incorporate that even without having to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in Rome, so uh, it's a great place yes. to try that.
0: Uh, <laughs> Well, congratulations, uh, dancing your way around uh, all the, the wonderful things in, in Italy. And um, I hope you have a marvellous holiday, and, and thank you so much. And if people want to uh, find out more about you, where is the best place to go?
1: I appreciate it. Yeah, so my website is nearandfar.com, spelled like my first name, so that's nir and far.com And uh, that's the best place to find uh, my, my current writing and my books, again, our, the first book is Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my second book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life.
0: It's so incredible. Thank you so, so much. Really, really appreciate the time. And I'll, um, I'll stop now. Thanks.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much.